All right, I hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 15. If you are at home, I hope you will grab your Bible and open to Mark chapter 15. As we begin this morning, I want to tell you where I hope to end this morning. By way of introduction, I want to tell you about the conclusion. I want to end this morning by helping us be convinced of the answers to two questions. Okay? I want us to be convinced of the answers to two questions. The first question is this. Can we truly be forgiven of all our sins, even the worst ones? And question number two, can we truly be free from the power of sin in our daily lives? Now, these are two questions that you've probably considered before, and my guess is that you have answers for. You could probably even go to the scriptures and give me verses to back up your answers, which means I have a problem right now. Because we're less than a minute into the sermon, and I may have already convinced you that you don't need to keep listening. Because I've posed two questions that you've already dealt with and have a defense for. So getting answers to these questions may not sound like a compelling reason to stay tuned for the next 35 to 40 minutes. But here's the catch. I didn't say I want us to be able to answer these questions. I said I want us to be convinced of the answers to these questions. There's a difference, isn't there, between knowing something intellectually and believing it and living by it? Based on the conversations I have, I think this is something that a lot of us wrestle with. We say we believe in forgiveness, but at the same time, we live with shame and guilt. And maybe you are still beating yourself up over things that you've done in the past. Things for which you've repented and been forgiven. There's this question in our minds at times of whether or not God is actually pleased with us because of the things we've done. We know what the Bible says, but maybe you know the unrest over past sins. The nagging feeling that forgiveness is something that still needs to be worked out or earned in some way. My fear is that all of us, maybe at times, shift in and out of this, where we know the scriptures and we sing the songs, but we still have not experienced the joy of rest in the forgiveness of God. I want us to be convinced this morning of the forgiveness of God, that it's full and it's effective. And second, second thing is, so often we say we believe that we can be set free from the power of sin, but yet we still hang on to these habitual, ongoing, ever-present seeming sins. This is common. There's just some sins that we just kind of just resign to the fact that they're just always going to be there. They're too pervasive. They're too deeply ingrained. The temptation is too strong. The flesh is too weak. And we just kind of, whether we ever make a declaration or not, we just kind of come to terms with it. We keep living this roller coaster of sin, confession, shame, and guilt. 
I'm pretty confident that most of you believe that forgiveness is available. And you believe theologically, intellectually, freedom from sin is possible. But the fear is that we don't always live as if these things are true. So let me restate my aim for this morning, where I hope that we can get by the end of our time together in God's Word this morning. I hope that we would leave this morning with this renewed confidence that forgiveness is available. We can live in the joy of forgiveness. And that freedom is available, that we can overcome and move past those sins that we have struggled with for a long time. This week, as I've been thinking about the message, I keep going back. Sometimes if I, maybe this happens to you. I, I hope this happens to you. As you're reading the Bible and thinking about something, a song lyric will come to you. Maybe a song that we sing together. For me, the song lyric that's been kind of echoing in my head is from the song, Behold, or excuse me, Before the Throne of God. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. And just right there, I love that acknowledgement that there is this temptation to despair over the things that we've done. And that the enemy is whispering to us so often this, you're guilty. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and then here's the response from the songwriter, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I think that's a, that right there is an argument of why it's important for us to sing good songs together. Because as we sing, these truths, they get lodged into our heads and our hearts, right? And you may find yourself in a situation Struggling with despair, struggling with guilt, you think, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. It's a good lyric. It's a good reminder. I'm glad that we sing these songs and that I hear them and my kids hear them. And that maybe 20 years from now, a truth that we've sung could serve as a warning or an encouragement. But here's the thing about that lyric. On its own, it may not have much substance. Because what does it really mean to look up and to behold Christ and to allow that to change the way we feel about our sin? How does that actually work? Sounds pretty, but is it practical? It's a reminder that one of the things we must do over and over is to be reminded of the gospel we need to know what Jesus did, what he accomplished, and why what Jesus did is sufficient for us. We need to be able to make that connection between the cross and the way we think about our sin. So as we come to Mark 15 this morning, this is our opportunity to rehearse these things together. To think about the suffering and death of Christ and to do so in such a way that as we see the cross and we see the suffering of Christ, it prepares us for the fight. What fight? That fight against guilt and despair. That fight against temptation and sin. Church, would you make it your aim for the next few minutes to look at the cross of Christ 
to consider what he endured and, and to think this. If he did that and it was effective, and we trust that he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't going to be effective. If he did that, then I can be forgiven. And I can have freedom from sin. That's the conclusion by way of introduction. All right. Let's go to the text. Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 21 to 32. I like to tell you every now and then about my struggles. My struggle this week is, do we just get through the whole crucifixion this morning? I think it's worth us breaking it up into two weeks and spending two weeks considering what Christ has done. So we'll consider the first part this morning, and then we'll go to the next part next week. Verse 21. And the soldiers compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I ask that God would bless the reading and hearing of his word to change us, to convince us of forgiveness and of the freedom we can have over sin. A lot of you know, especially those of you who join us on Wednesday nights, that something I really enjoy is taking a passage of Scripture and diagramming the sentence. I like to arrange it on a piece of paper, whether I write it out or do it on the computer. I like to see the flow of the text in a way that has a shape to it. It gives me a lot of joy. <laughs> and maybe that just confirms my nerd theology status. I do love to diagram passages to see the flow and how it all fits together. So this week I did what I normally do. I opened up a blank Word document. I grabbed the text. I copied and pasted it onto my Word document. And I got ready to start tabbing and spacing and moving things around. I worked through the text, and here's what I discovered. This text didn't need to be diagrammed. <laughs> it didn't turn out as a diagram as much as it turned out as a list. Everything was on the left-hand margin. And if you look at it, you can see that it all just, it's and, and. So, and they compelled a passerby to carry his cross. And they brought him to Golgotha. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments. And it was the third hour. And the inscription of the charge read, And they crucified two robbers with him. And those who passed by derided him. So also did the priest 
so also did those who were crucified with him. It's just a list. Here's the things that happened. Not much building on each other necessarily. Just event, 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 event. Mark's just telling us this happened and then this happened. And so I found myself earlier in the week just with this list and not really knowing what, do we just have 10 points? What, what, do, we, what do we do with this? As I kept reading the list, there were two things about it that stood out to me. First, what's on the list? Basically, everything on this list, in this telling of Mark, is ways that Jesus was mocked and caused shame. Ways that he was caused to suffer. It's a list of the things that were done to him. They brought him to Golgotha. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. They crucified him. They divided his garments. They hung the inscription above him. They crucified him with two robbers. All these things that were done to Christ. But what stood out to me was not only what the text said was done to him, but his response, which is absent from the text. There's nothing on the list about how Jesus responds. It's a list about what's done to him. And it's awful things. Things that produce shame and pain and humiliation and suffering. But he doesn't fight back. He doesn't shout back. He doesn't throw a punch. And he doesn't make a threat. It's really similar to what we saw last week. Remember Jesus dressed up by these soldiers to look like a king and they mocked him and he lets it happen. He fulfills the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. If we had to summarize our passage in Mark 15 in one sentence, that's not a bad one to choose. What's a summary of Mark 15, 21 to 32? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It's incredible to sit with. The sinless, perfect son of God, beaten, shamed, and killed, and he doesn't stop it, although he could. If we get one sentence, I'm going with Isaiah 53, 7 as our summary sentence for this morning. If I get three or four sentences... I'm going to 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says. And I think this is also, it may be an overview of what we see in Mark 15. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Don't you think it's a perfect overview of what we read in Mark? Jesus, the sinless, perfect one, deserving nothing but honor, was reviled and caused to suffer, but he did not revile in return. He didn't trade insult for insult. He was beaten, but he did not threaten. Instead, Peter says, just maybe write this down this week and just spend some time thinking about it. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We're not going to get into the context of 1 Peter 2 today, but this is in the context of how Christ can be our example for how we can suffer. Continuing to entrust ourselves to him who judges 
justly. What we know is that Christ did this. This was the commitment he made when he prayed in the garden. Mark 14, 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Mark 15 is a summary of the suffering and the shame that he went through. As we go through the passage, I do want to help us to kind of feel the pain, to feel the shame, to feel the weight. I don't think we should read the explanation, the description of the cross without feeling the weight of what Christ endured. And as we do, as you maybe feel a sense of the pain and the shame and the humiliation, consider that Jesus did this willingly in full submission to the Father. And then towards the end, we're going to shift to consider what that means for the confidence we can have in forgiveness and freedom from sin. If you were with us last week, you should remember the, where we are in the sequence of events. There was a Thursday night arrest, a middle-of-the-night trial, a handing over from the Jews to the Romans who would do the execution. Then Pilate has this back and forth where ultimately he determines to sentence Christ to death. After that, Jesus is scourged. And then last week, he was mocked and beaten by Roman soldiers. All that to say is, as we come to our text, this is by no means the beginning of the suffering. At this point, Jesus, he's already a severely beaten man. We pick up after a long, can we say the longest night in history? It's morning now, and they're going from the palace where Jesus has been mocked and beaten, and they're going to the place of execution. Verse 21 says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So as they make this transition from where they were to where Christ will die, there was customs and traditions that go into crucifixions. Remember, Jesus was not the only person ever crucified. This was something that happened. And there was processes and traditions and customs. And one of the customs was that the one who was being crucified would carry the crossbar part of the cross. They would carry that from the place of sentencing to the place of execution. It's part of the torture. It's part of the shaming process. You're going to be a parade. In the case of Jesus, Mark tells us that someone else carried the cross. This man named Simon, who was coming in from the country and was taken and compelled, um, not really convinced, but told that he would carry this cross. And this wasn't an act of mercy. Most likely, although the scriptures never explicitly say this, most likely this happened because Jesus was already too weak. He had been beaten too badly. He could not physically carry his own cross so even there, in this first verse, we have an indication of the depth of his suffering. He couldn't carry the cross, maybe couldn't even walk, but he had to walk this walk of shame to the place where he was going to die. It was a place just outside the city, just beyond the wall, a place called Golgotha, which Mark tells us means a place of a skull. It's a place we don't know a lot about, but most likely it was the place that was regularly used for these kinds of executions. Which is another reminder of how shameful this is. 
The Son of God, creator, sovereign one, in flesh, taken to a place where criminals are killed. This is where your life will end. The same place that every other scum of the earth dies. Of course, for us, outside of this sermon context, when we mention the cross, we are prone to singing lyrics like the wonderful cross, the beautiful cross. And it's true that the cross made wonderful and beautiful things possible, but what Mark wants us to remember is the shame of the cross. Shame of a cross isn't a great lyric, is it? It's more fun to sing the wonderful cross. But when we read this text, it's all about shame, humiliation. The fact that Jesus was marched to this awful place, a place reserved for the worst of the worst, a place set aside for the execution of society's most unacceptable people. The next thing on the list that Mark mentions is this offer of wine and myrrh, which is another indication of the depth of suffering. We don't know who made the offer, but most likely it was done in an act of mercy for someone who wanted to ease his pain, if even in the slightest. I read that there was this tradition that women from Jerusalem would go out when there was a crucifixion and offer this concoction of wine and myrrh to the one being crucified. And they did that because they believed that it was a... what. God prescribed in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31.6 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. And so some have indicated that these women, in obedience to Proverbs 31, would go out to the one being executed and offer him strong drink. There may have been in this group some who saw this as an act of obedience. So, Regardless of who offered it or why it was offered, what we see is that Jesus refused it. And while we're not given a reason why, we know that this means he's going to bear the agony without any form of relief. He chose to go to the cross fully conscious of the pain. God had given this cup for him to drink, and he was going to drink it fully. Everything about this screams pain and shame. Crucifixion, it's, it's arguably the most torturous and brutal form of execution ever sanctioned. I'm not going to spend time this morning necessarily going into all the details of crucifixion. But what you should know about this is that it was slow and agonizing. When someone was crucified, they, they didn't die from blood loss. They didn't die from open wounds. They died from exhaustion and suffocation. Here they are suspended on a cross in such a way that their body is stretched and they have a hard time getting breath. And so they would hang and they would struggle. And eventually their body would tire, their organs would fail, and they would die. Crucifixion prolonged suffering. It didn't speed it up. It was a torturous and brutal way to die. Most people would say, just kill me, right? Don't crucify me. But all Mark says here is, and they crucified him. And the original readers, those who heard this first, they would not have needed the description. They knew. 
There was no more shameful or painful way for a person to be brought to death. And this is what Jesus endured. But there's more. And the next thing may seem more trivial. We're told that as Jesus hung on the cross, the soldiers play a game for who would get to keep his clothes. Now remember, this is, this is a different time. You probably have lots of clothes in your closet. This was a time when clothes had a little more value. And so it would have been a nice bonus for these guys to go home from work with an extra set of clothes. But setting aside what they get out of it, think about what this says by way of shame. First, it's an indication to us that Jesus doesn't have his clothes with him. He's probably hanging completely exposed. Second, it's a reminder of how dehumanizing this whole thing was. It was shameful. It fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 22, verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the prophecy told in Psalm 22 and fulfilled in Christ. We see how this process of even his clothes being gambled away adds to the shame. They took everything. They took his dignity, his humanity, his life, even his clothes. Nothing was off limits. He had been sentenced to death, and the whole process was a process of shame. Remember the charge? Also, a source of mocking and shame. It's the next thing. We're told that the charge that was hung over him, which was customary for a charge to be hung on the cross above the accused so anyone coming by could see what this person had done, the charge leveled against him, king of the Jews. And this wasn't an exalted title. It was a source of mockery. We know that Jesus, he's not only a king, he's the king. He's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, but the people who read this charge, they didn't read it as an acknowledgement of his status. They saw it as another reason to mock him. A reason that justified what they were doing to him. He was a man who deserved to die a shameful death. And there was nothing about this that exalted him. It was all shame. On that day, Jesus was another criminal. He wasn't even there alone that day. There's nothing about this that we could say, Jesus, <laughs> there's any glory in this. He is one of three men executed that day. We see that hung with one to his right and one to his left. And if I sound like a broken record, maybe you'll remember it. This whole list, every one of it, it's shame, it's humiliation, it's suffering, it's ten things that were done to him. They all work together. The place added to the shame. The form of execution added to the shame. The gambling for his clothes added to the shame. The way he was charged added to the shame. And the same can be said for who he was crucified with. The perfect and sinless son of God and killed alongside wicked men. Put in the same category as those who had done evil things and who rightly deserve this. At one point this week, I thought that maybe we would just spend our time this morning bouncing back and forth from Mark 15 to the Old Testament because so much of what we see here is direct fulfillment of 
Old Testament prophecy and scripture. This part that he's hung between two criminals. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered with sinners. He was hung there between sinners so that he could become the mediator for sinners. We're we're moving towards talking about the reason for the cross, but right now we're just considering the shame. And it's compounded by those who mock him. Verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, up to this point, the list has been moving pretty quickly. This is where Mark slows down. He doesn't just say, and they mocked him, although that would be consistent with the rest of the list. Here, he gives us three groups of people who mock him and tells us what they say. What we see is that this first group are those who are passing by. Remember, it's Passover week. Lots of people coming to and from Jerusalem. There would naturally be crowds around. And while there's no doubt that there were many in Jerusalem who thought well of Jesus, this emphasizes that more and more people were joining the mockery. Again, a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 109.25. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. And Mark uses that language wagging their heads. They mock him, suggesting that if he is who he claims to be, he should save himself. If you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, this should be easier. Just save yourself. Now, we won't dive into how they're misquoting him and misconstruing what he had said in the past about the temple and its rebuilding. The point is that more and more people have turned on him they're doing exactly what the scriptures foretold would happen. Again, Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you recognize Jesus knew the scriptures? And he, even better than us, knew which parts applied to him specifically. He knew Psalm 22. He quotes it from the cross. We'll see that later. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew what he was walking into. This was no surprise to him. He was there knowing the pain and the shame and knowing that he'd be mocked by the general public and also by Jewish leaders. We see that in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. It's been pointed out that it would have been rare for men of this status, men of this stature, to have shown up to a crucifixion. This was a bloody mess. Not the kind of thing that a chief priest or a scribe would normally show up for. 
But what we see here are men who had come to such a place of hatred and disdain that it wasn't enough for them to know that they had sent him to the cross. They wanted to be there. They wanted to see it, and they wanted to get in one last word of insult. Their bitterness and hatred toward Jesus is on full display. He said, they say, like, he saved others. You remember how much they hated his ministry? He would heal someone, do something amazing. And what would they say? He did it on the Sabbath. Right? They mock him. You came to save people, to heal people? Save yourself. Heal yourself. They sarcastically call him the king of Israel. I'll be honest. If I let myself sit with this and to picture Christ on the cross and these fools <laughs> mocking him, I so wish he would have done something to shame them. Right? He will. He did three days later. Jesus would and will get the final word. But in that moment, he simply endured. We can't endure far less, can we? We want to get that final word in. Yet there he hung, taking mockery from those passing by, from Jewish leaders, and even from the two men on either side of him. Verse 32, the last thing on our list. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. If you need proof that virtually everyone was joining in, these two guys had other things on their mind, right? Their life is ending. And even in their suffering and the most agonizing torture, they decide, let's turn on the guy in the middle. They too add their voices to the mocking. We can read more about these guys in the Gospel of Luke. Mark doesn't give us the story of that interaction. I think Mark's point is made. He's pushing us to see the pain and the shame and the suffering and the humiliation. Everyone mocked him. Now, crucifixion, no matter who endured it, was many of the things we've said this morning. Shameful, humiliating, painful, agonizing. But for us, it, it's all even weightier when we consider this is God. He had never sinned. There was nothing ever that would make him deserve this. Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, which isn't talking about his time on the cross necessarily, but just his life in general. Up to this point, he's perfect. We like to talk about justice and injustice. There is no greater act of injustice in all of history than this. God in flesh, mocked and killed by sinful men. And yet what we recognize is that Jesus didn't resist it. He didn't oppose it. He went to the pain. He accepted the shame. Which brings me back to the second thing I told you I want to notice. The first thing is that this is a list of things done to Jesus. The second thing is that we don't have a response from Jesus. He went willingly. Fully obedient, fully submissive. He knew what he came to do, and he walked towards it. Peter says it this way. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that brings us back to where we started. Because Jesus was willing to endure all of this the way he did, we can know 
that forgiveness is available and freedom from sin is possible because Jesus would not have endured these things if it would not be effective. What did he accomplish? Just look at these last few verses in Peter and then we'll be done. Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but it continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then here's the result of, because he did that, in doing that, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When I began, I said I wanted to, I want us to leave this morning convinced that forgiveness, true, full forgiveness is available and freedom from the power of sin is possible. And here's my big swing to convince us of these things. Jesus walked willingly into shame and suffering. He fulfilled the scriptures. He submitted to the will of God and he did so, so that these things would be accomplished. He did it on purpose and he did it so that you can be forgiven of your sins. He did it so that you don't have to be a slave. If we see the cross as something that happened by the will of God and for the purposes of God, and if we see how much it cost Christ, how could we ever question its effectiveness? Let me say it this way. A low view of forgiveness, a weak view of forgiveness, comes from a low and a weak view of the cross. But if we recognize what Christ did, then it should give us confidence in his ability to forgive. And if you struggle to think that, that God can give you victory over your sin, there's a chance that you've not thought well enough of the cross and of what Jesus did. Because if he did those things and he did them fully, then the scripture says you can be free. Change is possible. We don't get all that in Mark, but Peter gives us a great commentary. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He hung there. Why? To bear our sins. The theological word for it is substitution. Jesus died in our place. He decided to prove the mockers wrong and to show that he could save himself, but instead he would save us. Because he stayed, he bore our sins. And because he bore our sins, we can know that we will be forgiven. Peter goes on and says, by his wounds, you have been healed. When we read Mark 15, we should think of the wounds, the wounds from the scourging that tore open his back, the wounds from the crown of thorns that was pushed on his head, the wounds from the nails that pierced his hands. By his wounds, you have been healed. And he's not talking about physical healing. This isn't a, a verse we use when we pray for relief from COVID. He's saying, no, no, you're forgiven. Friends, if you're struggling to believe that Jesus will forgive you, look to the cross and allow the cross to serve as your reminder that God can and does forgive.
you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer, the guardian of your souls. Because of the cross, we can have confidence that God forgives us. And because of the cross, we can have confidence that God can set us free from the power of sin in our lives. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Probably one of the greatest tragedies in the church is that so many of us come to Christ and for a while we experience radical change and we get to a certain point and then we settle in. Maybe you know what I mean. I've taken care of all the big ones and no one else outside really sees anything else. I'm one of the crowd now. I'm one of the church. Everyone sees me that way. But then there's this little group of sins that are pretty persistent and we just settle in with them. I'm afraid a lot of us end up here. And if that's you, I want to urge you to look to the cross. Look at what God did bearing your shame. He did it so that you don't have to be a slave to any sin. He died so that you can walk in freedom. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Dead to sin, alive to righteousness. But so many of us buy into the lie that we can never change. It's who I am. The battle against lust or anger or impatience or gossip or dishonesty or jealousy or greed or bitterness or unforgiveness or worry. Fill in the blank or blanks for yourself. What is that sin you think you will never be free of? Can I encourage you? Jesus endured what he endured and he did what he did so that you can die to all those sins and live to righteousness, obedience. And if you struggle to see his death as enough, then you should take this time this week to go back through Mark 15 and be reminded of the links that he went to. What he did was full and it's effective. His death was not in vain. Forgiveness, full forgiveness is available. Freedom, full freedom is possible because Jesus bore our shame and took our punishment. I want to end by sharing with you a phrase that I've shared with you before that I think of often. I heard it first from Jerry Bridges, although I don't think it's original to him. But in his book, Discipline of Grace, he talks a lot about the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. What does that mean? It means that the gospel, it's not something that we only share with others to bring them to salvation, but it's something that we must remind ourselves of, preach to ourselves every day. Every day we should tell ourselves, remind ourselves, preach to ourselves that Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that we are no longer bound by sin. Tell ourselves, preach to ourselves, forgiveness is available because of Jesus. I don't have to live in guilt. I don't have to live in shame. Preach to ourselves. We are no longer slaves because of Christ, because he bore the pain and the shame, because he died and rose again. I can die to sin. I can live in obedience. Be a preacher. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself. 
let yourself sit with the weight of the cross and know that if Jesus did that, it is effective and it's effective for all who repent and believe. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him to him who judges justly. He himself bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like a sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is our hope. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. We have heard the story. Most of us could describe the cross and the things before it and leading up to it. And yet, we struggle at times to believe that it's effective for us. Maybe effective for others, but we have a hard time personalizing it. God, I pray that you would use your word this morning to build confidence in us of your forgiveness and the freedom for which we've been saved. Maybe this would be the week when we find further victory or we're more obedient because we recognize that you have, in fact, made this possible. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Would you change us through the hearing of your word? In Jesus' name we pray.